have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to Joel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you can find Joel 2 on page 762. We're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, The sermon will be uh, a bit shorter than normal because of the the dedications, and then actually to end our service at the 9 a.m. this morning, we'll be doing a commissioning for our Mendenhall missions trip team that heads to Mississippi uh, this Wednesday. Um, But as I say shorter, don't think less important or impactful. Because as we preach through this book of Joel, we arrive now to the most well-known passage in the entire book. In that the five verses, only covering five verses this morning, uh, but those five verses are either quoted or referenced nine times in the New Testament. Um, in that this passage was and is uh, a passage that will reverberate throughout the rest of Scripture. The word picture I have in my mind is that if you're at a small pond and you drop a big rock into a small pond, and you just see the ripple effects go on from that place. That, that's this passage. This passage is the rock, and you'll see the quotes and the references be ripple effects that get carried through to the end of scripture from the gospels all the way to revelation but um, for those who are just joining us for the first time this morning uh, maybe you've not been here so far for our joel series um, here is the 30 to 60 second overview of this book Um, joel is a prophet in the old testament sent by god to speak to god's people and he begins right out of the gate exhorting the people of god to wake up and lament to lament because their land has been destroyed by a locust invasion and then by a drought and then by wildfires. And so we were able to take a couple of weeks to focus on this call to lament and see how lament is a vital practice in shaping us in our walk with Christ in our lives today. And then from there, he equates this invasion of locusts Uh, that has led to this present-day distress to a future moment called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord where the Lord will invade the land and provide future deliverance for those who repent and turn to him. So the focus of the series went from a call to lament to a then call to repent. And so again, if you're just visiting this morning, you might be thinking at this point, um, wow, real chipper sermon series you got going on here, um, set that I've missed it so far. And um, uh, it, it is true that we have heard and talked more about locusts in the last month than any of us ever probably want to talk or hear about again for the rest of our lives. But we have seen God move powerfully in this series with a serious joy that has really emerged from these pages. And then last week, we were able to see the turn in that uh, Joel went on to really speak powerfully about the joys of repentance, that repentance is not just this negative word that, uh, that, that we often maybe might connotate in our minds to, but, but that there's real joys and gifts that come with repentance. And last week, we saw how repentance brings protection, how it alleviates fear, How it brings real joy and restoration and and maybe most of all, how repentance removes shame. How all of us, whether we realize it or not, carry with us shame, either externally, things that have been done to us, that then we internalize that shame, or that we've been perpetrators of certain sin, that we carry shame with it, and how repentance removes shame. And after telling the people that their land now, after these droughts and invasion of locusts, would be fruitful once again, and the rains will return, and 
and the Lord will restore the years that were lost to Israel. Now he goes on to share an even bigger promise that will look out into the distant future. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So why is it that the New Testament authors especially latched so deeply onto these verses? And latched so deeply onto the promise that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Why was that so significant? Well, we do need to take some time to unpack that. To understand why in the scope of scripture that promise was this such a forceful one. Before we can understand how then we can apply that for our lives. What does that mean for us today? This promise of the spirit was wide And it was deep. That's our framework for this morning. This promise of pouring out the Spirit was both wide and it was deep. It was wide in that the Spirit would fill all the people of God, not some, but all. That's a big deal. But it was also deep in that the Spirit would empower all people in their everyday lives. That the Spirit would be the engine that fuels all the people of God in everything that they do. And so a question that just kind of confronts us, even as we start out unpacking this passage, is how much do you think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you if you profess to be a believer? How much does that shape and form you in your everyday life? How um, much do you understand what that means and what it can mean for you? So let's unpack these. First, the wideness or the width of the Spirit. Um, So when Joel records the words of the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit, he is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Um, That what, What the Bible would go on to reveal is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who, just like the Father and the Son, has existed eternally as part of the Godhead. The Spirit, and there's all different kind of... um, versions or descriptions of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, and we want to affirm that He's not a force. It's not just a powerful energy that kind of comes and goes that you can try to grab hold onto. The Holy Spirit is a person, and He is fully God, and He is distinguished from the Father and from the Son in personhood and role while being still fully God. The first time that the Spirit comes in the biblical story is in the second verse of the entire Bible. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, and then immediately we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was not created. He was there at creation. 
And in the Old Testament, then the Holy Spirit, after being involved in that work of creation, is then engaged in the work of persevering, preserving, and protecting that creation. But the Holy Spirit in relation to God's people in the Old Testament was this, that we saw the Spirit would be sent to come upon special people on special occasions for special tasks. If you're taking notes, that was the Holy Spirit's manifestation in the Old Testament. He would be sent and he came upon special people on special occasions for special tasks of deliverance. Um, um, who were some of these special people throughout the Old Testament story? Um, oftentimes, but not always, they were leaders. You had uh, men and women who were judges. Uh, he came upon priests and kings. But then there are certain times in the Old Testament that he came upon what you might call common people, right? Um, like craftsmen and, and men like Joel, actually. Uh, we, we said in week one that we know nothing about Joel in the entire Bible except his name and the name of his daddy. Nothing else. And yet, what we do know most importantly about him is that the Spirit came upon him to proclaim the word of the Lord. And so the Old Testament, the Spirit comes upon special people on special occasions for special tasks of deliverance. And so that's the framework that Joel speaks of the wideness of this promise. This is why it's a big deal. He says, I will pour my Spirit out on all flesh, not some, all and then just in case, uh, you know, the people misheard him, he says it again in verse 29, even more emphatically, he says, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. And so while this is the first time that this spirit, this promise is explicitly given, it's not the first time it was, um, it was kind of longed for, hoped for. So you, you don't have to turn back there, but back in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 11, Moses was a man who was used by God. The Spirit came upon him to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And upon that uh, promise that was given and that deliverance that was happened, a special occasion, uh, Spirit coming upon a special person for a special occasion, for a special task, uh, Moses led a group of 1.5 million men, women, and children out of Egypt and towards the promised land. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know it did not take long for those people to begin to complain to Moses. Why? They were hungry, and they were tired, and they were thirsty, and so they begin to complain, and they're struggling in their flesh of this, this act of deliverance, and so the Lord through Moses provides daily manna, meaning daily bread, meaning you'd wake up, come out of your tent, and there's bread on the ground that came from the sky each and every day, and God provided this, this food to eat, but the people, like, we're fallen people, man. So what, what happened after a while? They got sick of the manna. They were eating the same thing every single day. And so you get to Numbers 11, and they start to talk amongst one another, and they say, hey, do you remember when we were back in Egypt? Do you remember we got to eat meat? And not only meat, it literally says this, but fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic, all right? Not sure why garlic made the list, all right? Like one of these don't belong, but garlic's there, and they're fantasizing about the garlic that they got to eat. Meanwhile, completely neglecting the fact that they were slaves in Egypt, enslaved. But at that moment, they're saying, I wish I could go back. 
this is probably not a great illustration, but for parents of young children in the room, you will hear me on this. It's those moments that moms, dads, uh, you've had a long day, and just getting food onto the table was like a miracle in and of itself. And you've worked hard, and you get it on the table, and the first reaction is like, oh, man, complaining. Maybe not your kids, all right, maybe just mine. Maybe that just happens once in a while. But like the idea where in that moment you're like, I don't know if I want to be your dad anymore. I'm uh, just not sure this is going to work. And, and Moses had a similar reaction. You get, again, you could read Moses 11, and Moses turns to the Lord and goes, Why do you do this to me, Lord? Why did you give me these people? And in God's kindness, he tells Moses to appoint 70 elders. And this is what he tells them. He says, I will take some of the spirit that's on you, and I will put it upon them as well so they can share the burden with you and help lead. And it happens. And now 70 men have the spirit come upon them to help kind of lead and distribute and navigate, um, you know, leading these 1.5 million people. But the complaining still does not totally stop. And so you get to Numbers 11:29, and Moses says this, quote, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets so that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Meaning, how great would it be if all God's people had the spirit? And now, about a thousand years later, Joel promises that is exactly what will happen, putting fuel to the fire of expectation that is all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament, an old covenant anticipating a new covenant where the Spirit would be poured out in an unprecedented way. Young and old, Joel says, men and women, slave and free, all people. And if Joel was a post-exile prophet, which is the way I lean towards, we're not totally sure exactly when in Israel's history he spoke, but if he was a post-exile prophet, this would likely be one of, if not the final promises of God given to his people through a prophet before there would be silence for 400 years. This promise, long anticipated, is given, and then 400 years of silence, and then you get to Luke chapter 1, and an angel comes upon a teenage girl, and her name is Mary. He says, Mary, you will have a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will be a great king, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary, understandably, goes, how? How will that be since I am a virgin? And then Luke 1, 35, it's on the screen, says this. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So we see this connection. The Spirit was there at creation in Genesis 1, hovering over the waters. And the Spirit is there in Luke 1, at the conception of Jesus, hovering over Mary's womb. Special people on special occasions for special tasks of deliverance. And then Jesus, God in the flesh, will live the perfect life 
sustained by the Spirit upon him through his life. And he would be faithful to see his purpose through, to see his mission through. And he would die on the cross to declare victory over death and sin, to atone for the sins of God's people, to grant forgiveness for those who put their trust in him. Last week's language, to alleviate the shame and reverse the curse. And what does Jesus tell his disciples the night before he goes to the cross in John chapter 14? He says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and look, and will be in you. Jesus says, you know, the spirit that we've talked about, the spirit that has been upon me, well, there's a day that's coming. I won't be here anymore, but that spirit is going to come upon you and will be in you. And Jesus will give that promise. The next day he would die on the cross. The third day he'll be raised from the dead. He'll spend some time with his disciples, and then he'll ascend to heaven. And before he ascends, we keep going. We go to Acts chapter 1 now. And he says this in Acts 1, you will receive power when, look, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's Acts 1. Go to Acts 2. The day of Pentecost arrives. And as they sat in the upper room praying, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in a whole bunch of different languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they go out to the crowds, because there's a lot of crowds in Jerusalem for Pentecost, people who come from all over the empire. And they are astonished that these men and women can speak in their languages. And so they come up with this brilliant conclusion they must be drunk. That must be the reason. And Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 16, he says this, but this is what was uttered through the prophet who? Joel. And then Peter, in Acts 2, goes on to quote Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. All of God's people will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like Mary asked how, people out there asking how, the person and work of Jesus. Because right after quoting Joel 2, Peter knows what he's doing. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And then goes on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and calls people to repent. So back to Joel. Here's this prophet speaking to Israel, promising them restoration of their land, and then looks into the distant future and promises future deliverance and a future indwelling upon all who believe. This is the wideness of the promise. You almost can't overstate it. It's no longer some people some of the time. That's the way it's been up until now. But now it will be all people, all the time. All people who trust in Jesus Christ. So that's the wideness. Now let's look at the depth, the deepness of the promise. 
What will the Spirit, when it is poured out and when it fills God's people, what will actually empower them to do? And this is where we see ourselves in the story now. What does the Holy Spirit empower you to do? What evidence will there be that you have the Holy Spirit? Joel gives an illuminating list, probably not an exhaustive one, but he says in verse 28, Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. What's that mean? The depth of the Spirit. Number one, prophecies. Here's the best definition of prophecy that I came across. Again, if you're taking notes, I think this will be helpful. Especially because I think there's just a lot of talk and discussion and confusion around prophetic talking, teaching. Prophecy is to be prompted by God to speak the right word at the right time, in the right way. To be able to speak prophecy is to speak the right word at the right time, in the right way. Uh, This is an aspect of the depth of the Spirit. And keeping in mind, all believers will be filled with this ability. So let's talk about that. What's it mean that all people can prophesy? Well, again, if we're following the logic of this text, we mean that the Spirit is now in all believers. So all believers are capable of speaking the Word of God. Uh, some, sometimes you might hear of people talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy. Again, I don't have time to kind of cover that whole discussion. But um, people will say, I, I have a prophetic word. And, and that, that the Lord has given them that he wants to build other people with, or he or she wants to build up other people with. And I do think that certain people are given the gift of prophecy to, to, to be used by God regularly in that way. But let's be clear here. Let's stick to the text. This is saying that all believers will have the ability to prophesy because all believers will have the Spirit poured out on them. And so even when we need to talk about the spiritual gift of prophecy... We don't mean that that's something only those can do, but that they have an extra measure of grace and power and opportunity to do it. And so I see this as all believers at least being capable to prophesy, meaning all believers can speak the right word at the right time in the right way. Uh, I wonder if this is what the Apostle Paul was thinking about when he was writing the letter to the book of Galatians. I wonder if this is one of the ripple effects of Joel chapter 2 when he's encouraging them that they are all one in Christ because a lot of the divisions that were happening in the Galatian church. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as we said when we preached through Galatians earlier this year, that Paul is not saying that distinctions get erased amongst believers once the Spirit comes, but rather divisions are erased. And that's important. It's not that distinctions are erased, but divisions are erased. We are not divided. Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Our unity in Christ is stronger than our diversity in the world, so that actually you can now celebrate your diversity in the world because of your unity in Christ. And so, if you are a believer, I think you can be prompted by God to speak the right word at the right time in the right way. Uh, Some of you might have a clear memory in your mind of an experience in your life 
when a brother or sister in Christ, maybe that you knew, maybe that you didn't know, said something to you seemingly out of the blue, and it was exactly what you needed to hear. And you walk away thinking, man, only God could have done that. Only God could have provided that word in that way at that time. And often, I think it's even more power when it's not someone noteworthy. It's not a pastor. It's not a leader. Maybe it's somebody who's younger in the faith. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's your child. Somebody maybe you don't know at all. And God used them to speak prophetically into your life in a way that you will never forget. If you were here a few weeks ago, we had Scott and um, Barbara Harbert, who just left the mission field, uh, 35 years with AIM in Kenya, and they're just retiring, coming off the mission field, and we were able to have them here and talk to them and celebrate with them. And Scott shared a story from the stage of kind of a, just a memorable thing in his 35 years. I asked him, like, just give me one thing. It's kind of an unfair question. 35 years in the mission field. What's one thing that stands out to you? Scott shared that there was a moment where he was feeling such discouragement which I think missionaries can very much resonate with, this, this being cross-cultural missions, just feeling discouraged. And he had a friend who was a Kenyan man who traveled three hours one way and showed up at his door and said, the Lord prompted me to come see you, just to hang out, just to talk and pray with you, that you needed encouragement. And Scott did not tell him, but that's exactly what he needed. How would you account for that? The Spirit upon him, prompting him to say the right thing at the right time in the right way. And I think you take away one of those things of the definition, and it's not prophecy. You can say the wrong thing at the right time in the right way, not prophecy. You can say the right thing at the right time in the wrong way. Let's pay attention. It's not prophecy. And our words must align with the word. In that if anything we say contradicts this word, it's not from God. And the gray areas where you kind of have to discern, because there's not a verse in the Bible that, that you're being prompted to say to someone, I do think it's, it's safe to say, hey, it seems to me, it seems to me that the Lord is telling me to tell you this, but I don't want to claim that this is God's word because only this is God's word. But the Spirit is prompting me to share something to you to encourage you. It seems to me. I think that's good language. And so when we think about Grace Church, this is part of what we call every member ministry. That it's not just the pastors that prophesy, not just the staff, not just the elders who speak God's word. But it is all members who are equipped to speak life into one another. And so some of you now, this morning or in a place in life where you are praying for discernment. You're praying for wisdom from God. You're anticipating change, or you're, there's a big change coming, or something has happened in your life that you know is massive, and you have a decision ahead of you. I think it's a good prayer to ask that God would use other believers to speak life into you, to be attuned to who is God putting in your path that he might use to Prompt, prompt them to say something to you. And then on the other side of that, I think it's also a good prayer to regularly ask God to make it clear to you what is he prompting you to do, especially within the body of Christ. Who is he speaking you, uh, prompting you to speak life into, to share a prophetic word with? So that's number one. You got to keep going. Dream. 
or, or dreams, that your old men shall dream dreams. What does that mean? Again, it could mean several things, but I think often you see dreams in the Bible correlated with hope. That when the Spirit is poured out onto us and dwells within us, we are filled with hope. We dream dreams, and then we are able to live out of the fullness of that hope. Now, does this mean only older men and women are filled with hope? No. Does this give a number of what's considered old? No. All right, and am I going to venture a number? No. All right, so I don't know when you're an old man according to Joel or an old woman according to Joel, and I don't think we have to, like, iron that out. But I do think it means that, in general, those who are older in the faith have the real propensity for real hope in their lives. That those who are older in the faith have the propensity to live out of the fullness of hope. And I can't help but think how much of a contrast this is to the kind of cultural tired trope of the cranky old man. Where, where, where people as they grow older, they grow more bitter and resentful. And it's lamenting how everything's worse today than it was back in my day. And I wish we could just go back to my day. And those who are just kind of negative with everything. That's, that, that could be true at times, I'm sure. But it's, it's a cultural trope, not something that we have to kind of fall into. Because how different the biblical vision for aging is. That the biblical vision for, for growing older is a rugged confidence in what is happening in the here and now. To celebrate where you see God at work. While at the same time there's this increasing longing and anticipation for glory as one approaches the end of our lives. I think again of Galatians when Paul wrote the fruit of the Spirit, and I didn't even talk to Danny about this when Danny prayed the fruit of the Spirit this morning. That the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of a believer, how a long-time elderly, older believer is even more empowered to show love, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and the others because of the amount of time they've been walking with the Spirit. How refreshing it is to be around an older man or woman of faith who is filled with hope. And that they're just not bogged down or crushed by the stresses of life. It doesn't mean they don't care. It just means that they're not going to be crippled by it. They're not going to be in such panic about what's happening in the culture around us. They're not going to be in such a panic around how the world denies God. But there's this kind of rugged confidence that just comes out of them. And that they set to instill that confidence in others, especially those of us who are younger, who are freaking out. We are stressed and we are looking out and not wondering what the future holds. How, what a beautiful vision it is in the Bible of growing old in the faith. What a gift. Uh, one of the other places in the New Testament that borrows Joel's wording, one of the ripple effects I talked about earlier is Titus chapter 3. Paul is writing to Titus, who is a leader in the church, and he says this in verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. There it is. Whom he poured out on us, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, I won't read it, it won't be on the screen, but then a couple verses later you get to verse 9. 
And he proceeds to say, the evidence of this spirit being poured out is avoid foolish controversies. Avoid dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. As for a person who stirs up division, have nothing more to do with him. If you profess Christ, particularly if you are older in the faith, may it be true that a sign of that is the avoidance of and refusal to take part in bitter discourse. What a word for us going into an election week. You don't have to do it. You don't have to find yourself in the midst of bitter discourse where there's just anger and you're working out of the fullness of the flesh and not the fullness of the spirit. All right, lastly, number three. Pouring out of the spirit is seen in visions. Your young men shall see visions. Vision in this sense, I don't take it to mean um, that you literally see a picture of the future, but rather it's the grand vision that focuses on the mission of a believer. To have a vision for the grand mission of the believer, to make disciples of all nations and see themselves as written into that story. And so from that moment in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit is poured out, the rest of the book of Acts is this story of a group of 120 men and women who had a vision for making disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And who began that mission together? Who began spreading and proclaiming that gospel? It was those who the Spirit was poured out upon, and they began planting churches and making known the name of Christ, and it just went on and it went on and went on. And the importance of vision and seeing vision is not necessarily the methods or the steps, but I think it's more about the passion to get people to catch a vision and go with you. If you think about your life, who's a visionary in your industry, in your business, in your school? Who, who would you consider to be a visionary? It's not necessarily the methods. It's not the steps they take. It's the passion and conviction they have to say, I want to go with that. I want to go where he's going. I want to go where she's going. And where they're going catches the vision of God himself who has commissioned and sent them to live their lives in such a way that people are drawn to the God they love. Again, just like the last one, is it only young men or women that have visions? No. Is there a number on when you're considered young here? All right, we do young guys, old guys, flag football, 25. That's our number, all right? Arbitrary, not in the Bible. But that's not the number of Joel 2. Young, old, I don't know. But here's what I think is true, is that younger people have a greater propensity to envision something ahead of them and commit their lives to it. There is a reason of a, of a stat I read recently that 50% of cross-cultural missionaries are in their 20s when they go to the mission field for the first time. 35% are in their 30s. So why is it that 85 to 90% of cross-cultural missionaries begin in their 20s or 30s? Young men have visions. Young women have visions, and they commit their lives to it. And so as we close this morning, what is the goal of this wideness? What is the goal of this depth of the Spirit being poured out? Why does it matter? What's the goal we're all headed towards? However, God has gifted you in prophesying, in dreaming dreams, and seeing visions. Where does the story lead? Verse 32. 
and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. My goodness. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the vision of the Spirit being poured out that Joel gives to the people that will reverberate through the rest of Scripture where you'll get to Revelation 5 and you'll see the vision of the day of the Lord when people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will call upon the name of the Lord. Is this the story you want to be a part of? Is this the story that you see that the Spirit has empowered you to be written into that story? You don't have to watch. You can play. The width and the depth of the Spirit in you. What a life we're called to. We only got one. So let's commit to it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the vision that your Bible casts before us. We thank you for the promises that are all fulfilled in Christ including this major promise tucked away in the end of Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament that the Spirit will be poured out on all people. I pray, Lord, that we would have a clear understanding that that Spirit is received through faith in Jesus Christ for those who call upon your name. And Father, I pray that now for those who have made that commitment to follow you, Lord, that we would see the Spirit empowering us in our days, not wasting our lives, but committing them to you, being used by you in the way you've gifted us to make disciples of all nations. Lord, I pray Grace Church would see ourselves in the story. I pray that we would follow it courageously and that we would live out of the fullness of the Spirit that is in us. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in song and prepare to take the Lord's Supper.